Verse 15. The exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but is terror to the workers of iniquity. Skip down to verse 18. The wicked is a ransom for the righteous, and the treacherous is in the place of the upright. In other words, the suffering of all who ever walked righteously will become the condition of the wicked. Does that make sense to everybody? Let me say it again. The suffering of everyone who ever walked righteously, those who were martyred for their faith, those who lived well but were persecuted for it, all of that ugly suffering, difficult hardship, that's going to be the condition of those who live wickedly right now. That's what Solomon is saying. Every bad moment you ever experienced for the sake of Christ, that's going to become someone's experience for eternity. Isaiah 65.13, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants will eat, but you will be hungry. My servants will drink, but you will be thirsty. My servants will rejoice, you will be put to shame. My servants will shout joyfully with a glad heart. You will cry out with a heavy heart and you will wail with a broken spirit. These two verses are describing just that. Verse 15, the exercise of justice is joy for the righteous, but it's a terror to the workers of iniquity. When that day comes, when it's no longer the punishment, the consequence of our sin that is the problem, but God's wrath is coming, you do not want to be on the wrong side of things when that comes. Think of the martyrs in the tribulation. Revelation chapter 6 describes them. John says, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who have been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe. And they were told they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. The martyrs of the tribulation. They're going to huddle. They're going to come together. They're going to be there right by the throne. God's going to be covering them, healing them, comforting them, clothing them. And they're going to say, but Lord, look what happened to us. When, when is it all going to be made right? And the Lord says, soon, just a little while longer. But there are four, a few more who are going to be treated unjustly first. There are a few more who are going to pay the penalty for their faith that you paid. Hang on. Then, justly and thoroughly, the wrath of God will be poured out through the tribulation. Seven years later, at the coming of Christ, the cry of those same people, along with the rest of us, will be completely different. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, John says, After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. For He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. He's avenged the blood of His bondservants on her. And a second time, they say, Hallelujah! Her smoke rises up forever and ever. You know, I often cut it off right after the first Hallelujah because it's a little strong there. It's a tough language. Hallelujah! They're burning up! Hallelujah! They're getting fried! They're getting theirs! That's not the heart behind this. 
You need to understand, it's not vengeful scorn at the demise of others. It's going to be this incredible, great, wondrous cry of relief when everything is made right. When, when true justice is meted out. It's not going to be us up in heaven with the Lord. And by the way, that's quoting, that's quoting us. That's our song. And we will sing that as part of that great multitude. But it's not sitting up there pointing the finger and laughing and scorning those who are being destroyed in all of this. No, it's saying, thank you, Lord, for being just. Thank you for being fair. It's the mother who watched her child martyred for faith in Jesus saying, thank you, Lord, for making it right. Justice finally done. All the injustice and the unfairness and the lies and the deceit, the stuff that frustrates you every time you turn on the TV, is done. That's worth singing hallelujah about. And we will all in that moment look at the Lord, look at how He handles it, look at what all He's done and say, righteous and true. Wow, you were right. You were right. Verse 16. A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. You want to be spiritually dead? Wander away from the assembly of those who are alive. It's very simple. It's an apt description there of both physical and spiritual death. And the fastest route to spiritual deadness is forsaking the assembly of the saints, which you are not doing. So it's kind of preaching to the choir. But Hebrews 10, listen to this verse. I know you've heard it. Hebrews 10.24, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I've told you before, that was often used as a guilt trip verse when I was a kid going to church. It's not meant that way. It is not about guilt. It's about joy and life and encouragement. And that's what happens when we gather, isn't it? Don't you feel better? Don't you feel lifted up and encouraged and looking more forward to that day? That's the idea. The assembly of life as opposed to, well, the assembly of the dead. Verse 17. He who loves pleasure will become a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not become rich. Skip on down and read verse 20. In conjunction with that, there is precious treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man swallows it up. Here's the deal. The wise don't seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. The fool, on the other hand, gobbles it up. The fool, on the other hand, just wants to feel. If it feels good, do it. Is Boy, that is the clarion call of the fool of this last generation. If it feels good, do it. Pleasure for pleasure. doesn't matter where it's coming from, how you're getting it, who you're getting it with. It doesn't matter. Pleasure for pleasure's sake, just go for it. If it feels good, do it. Well, that's complete foolishness. The wise doesn't seek pleasure for pleasure's sake. Because wise people realize something. The things of pleasure always come at a cost. Always. There's always a cost. It's never free. Let me ask you a question to consider. And I want to read you a passage. What if you had to give up the one pleasure you enjoyed the most? Think about the one thing in your life that gives you, beyond everything else, the most pleasure. What if you had to give it up tonight? 
Now listen to this. Revelation chapter 18, verse 11, is dealing with the fall of Babylon. And all the pleasures of Babylon that that fall with it. Listen to this. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and, and every article of ivory and every article made from costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine, olive oil, fine flour and wheat cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives or literally bodies and souls human trafficking is what's being described the fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them here's the thing with pleasure and when you think about that one thing that you enjoy the most what if you couldn't Enjoy that anymore. What, what, what then? What would your life be like without that greatest pleasure? If your life would fall apart, that's really sad. But if that pleasure went away and you were able to go, okay, see, now you're in the right place. How sad when pleasure is the whole point. Pleasure for pleasure's sake. How pathetic is that? How pointless How empty. You know, Martha was laboring to provide a pleasant evening for Jesus. She wanted it to be just right, just so the house to be clean, the food to be prepared right. She wanted to offer a pleasurable evening to the Lord. And she's freaking out over it. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, Luke chapter 10, you're worried and bothered about so many things, but one thing's necessary. One thing. Mary has chosen the good part, listen to this, which shall not be taken away from her. Now, you got to grasp this. There is one thing in life which cannot be taken away from you. One pleasure worth having, and that is the pleasure of knowing Him. The pleasure of knowing Jesus will never be stripped away from you. All other pleasures are going to come and go. All other pleasures. I used to love playing basketball. Now, I can still play, but not like I used to. I don't have the same pleasure. In fact, a lot of the pleasure that I had in playing basketball is replaced by pain. I still love to play the game. But I, I, I can remember vividly the glory days. I remember high school. I remember summertime grabbing the ball and just heading down for pickup games. And I just loved it. And that pleasure is not there for me anymore. It's not the same. But the pleasure that I have in knowing Jesus Christ, it just gets better and better and better and better such that everything else begins to pale in comparison. It's a real, lasting, eternal joy in Jesus and it will not, it cannot be taken away from you. In fact, what is it that Jesus says in the parable? He says, enter into the joy of your Master. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. The pleasure of knowing Christ. Though all other pleasures cease, that one never will. Verse 21, He who pursues righteousness and loyalty finds life, righteousness, and honor. That word loyalty is important. It's chesed. It's grace. I don't know why they don't just say grace. Grace. 
You know, or, or loving kindness there, as the word hesed means. Two things are key to being honorable before the Lord. Pursue righteousness. Pursue righteousness. That word there in verse 21, he who pursues righteousness, I like the word, it literally means to pursue ardently. You know, to chase it down. Go after it. A kid in my youth group in high school had a football t-shirt that said, go hard or go home. I like that. And the person who pursues righteousness, who goes hard after righteousness, that's a good thing. Go for it, man. Set the bar high for your righteousness. Now listen. Here's the key to being honored before God. Pursue righteousness in your own life. Present grace to everybody else. You pursue righteousness, set a high bar, but present grace, loving kindness, chesed in the Hebrew. Let that be your expectation you're offering to every other person. I'm going to chase down righteousness. I'm going to seek holiness. I'm going to try and please Jesus in every way possible in my life, but I'm not going to expect that out of others. I am going to offer grace and compassion to everybody else. You see, our tendency is just the opposite. We expect rightness from everybody else, and we want some grace for us. I want you to show me mercy, but I expect you to do the job that you're supposed to do. Especially you, Jake, now that you're hired on. You better do the job. But don't tell me how to do my job. You give me grace. I need you. See, that's, that's the mentality. And Jesus said the opposite. He said, no, treat others the way you want them to treat you. You give grace to others. And then set the bar high for your own righteousness. It's what Jesus did. Jesus was always merciful toward others. He tended the brokenhearted. He healed those who were hurting. He ate with publicans and Democrats. (laughs) He expected all the righteousness of God in His own life. He lived His life perfectly and He hung out with people who were a mess. He gave grace to the broken. And he lived perfectly righteous in and of himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's marvelous. Verse 22. A wise man scales the city of the mighty and brings down the stronghold in which they trust. No doubt Solomon is thinking of Joab. Solomon knows the story. Joab, who was one of David's men, was there when David said, hey, whoever can figure out how to get up into the city of the Jebusites can be my captain. And by the way, there's got to be a way to get water in here. We talked about this story a couple weeks back. That, that shaft, that water shaft, up to the city of Jebus, Jerusalem. And Joab figured it out. He shimmied up 75 feet vertical. And you can see it. It's called Warren's Shaft in Jerusalem. You can see it today. He shimmied up the shaft. How did he do it? I, I can't even imagine. You know, hands and feet on the wall, uh, uh, you know, making his way up here, and you know, it's slippery and cold and wet, and he gets up into the city, sneaks around, opens up the gate, David's army pours in, and they take Jerusalem from the Jebusites. And that's got to be exactly what Solomon is referring to here in verse 22. And I, I think again, what did it take to shimmy up that, that shaft? A wise man, a wise woman, looks for a way in. A wise man, a wise woman, is always looking for opportunity. Opportunity to take the city, 
to take the life, and I mean in a positive way, we need shimmiers for the gospel. Gospel shimmiers. People who will look for a way in to the lives of friends, family around them. Looking for the open window, the open door. The question, why do you go to church every Wednesday night? There's a way up the shaft right there. You really believe everything the Bible says? Oh, there's a way. Shimmy up the shaft. There's an opening for the gospel. Man, my life lately has just been terrible and I just don't see any end in sight. I don't really see any purpose for it at all. Shimmy up the shaft. An opportunity was just opened up to you. Eyes open to look for a way in. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. I had to look that up, that phrase, making the most of your time. The, the Greek word, I kid you not, is ho exaggerazo. What does that sound like? <laughs> exaggerate. That's where we get our word exaggerate. Ho exaggerazo. And it means to use every opportunity. Exaggerate your opportunities. Go after whatever you find, even the slightest opportunity. Exaggerate it. Use it for the gospel. By the way, exaggerazo also means to pay the price of redemption. Make the most of your time. Pay the price of redemption for somebody. Because the days are evil. Verse 23, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. So if you keep your mouth shut, that's probably a good thing. Maybe you're thinking that about Pastor Rick right now. Verse 25. We already covered 24. Verse 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. All day long he is craving, while the righteous gives and does not hold back. Hmm. How does a person overcome laziness? Solomon would say, give generously. If you want to overcome laziness, give generally. The sluggard, literally here where it says the sluggard, all day long he is craving. Literally it's all day long he is constantly craving his craving. Or he desires desire. It's kind of the whole pleasure thing. It's pleasure for pleasure's sake. It's desire for desire's sake. It's craving for craving's sake. But it's the person who just loves, desires something for no reason other than they just desire it, but they can't do anything about it because they're so lazy. The righteous person is a generous giver. The righteous person gives time, resources, finances, and the more he gives, Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the more the righteous person gives, the more the Lord gives the righteous person so they can give more. And then He gives them more so they can give more again. And around and around it goes. Paul says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in all in everything for all liberality which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. The more you give, the more God's going to give you so that you can give more. That's the mentality You know where it says in the same chapter, God loves a cheerful giver? Hilarious is the Greek word. Hilarion. A a giver who is just hilarious about it. And it's hilarious to think how God works here. It really is. You mean if I give everything I've got, He's going to give me more so I can give more? Exactly. That's hilarious. I know. And God loves 
a hilarious giver. I've said before, I'm still waiting for the Sunday morning when someone drops a check in the box in the back and starts laughing uncontrollably. Because God loves a hilarious, cheerful giver. It's a standard principle with the Lord. Verse 27. Verse 27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent and we're back to false religion. Where we started in chapter 21, that whole religious mentality, bringing the sacrifice, but the heart's not there. You know, you can involve yourself in all manner of religious practice. You can be engaged in all kinds of ministry, sacrifices and and offerings. But if your life is harboring some kind of evil or wicked intent, all the religion is completely worthless. In fact, I think it just ticks God off. I think when we show up after having you know, lived one way, and we show up and act this way, and then we live this way, and playing the religious game, I think it just, it just ticks Him off. It ticked off Jesus. Who did He go after? Who was the only people group He went after throughout His ministry? The Pharisees. Because it was all religion. And the way they lived their lives was a complete farce. And I'll share this with you. I, I heard I ran into someone who heard I was going to be teaching on drinking in a couple of weeks. Remember, I, I mentioned that on Sunday. And this person actually said, "Well, as a guy who likes to get drunk on beer and loves Jesus, I'll be real interested in what you have to say." <laughs> wait a minute. Wait a minute. He drove off, and I just went, "Did you hear what you just said?" I love to get drunk on beer and I love Jesus. I like both. So I hope you're going to, you know, make it easy for me to do both. No. Actually, it has nothing to do with whether or not I'm going to make it easy. Tell me what. The Word's not going to make it easy. God hates that mentality. There's a word for it. Absurd. Incongruous. Which, by the way, is what absurd means. If your life is not aligning with your faith... You're just going off the road. A car out of alignment just keeps going off, and you got to and keeps going off, and eventually you're just going to go off the road. God wants our lives and our faith to be in alignment together. I believe this and live that way. I love Jesus, then live loving Jesus. Every turn of the wheel, like we talked about Sunday, every RPM in the Spirit, living God's way, not my way. And Hannah will tell you that's not easy for me. Any more than anybody else? I'm a sinner. I am not perfectly aligned. I'm in the shop constantly. (laughs) But God is calling for this step-by-step authenticity. Don't say you love Jesus and live that way. If you love Jesus, live for Jesus. If you truly do, live the way He's called you to live. Pursue Him. Chase down righteousness. Offer grace. Be a Jesus person or don't be. See, that's what the Bible says. Revelation 22.11 Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Why? Because I'm coming quickly, Jesus says. And my reward is with me to render to everyone according to his deeds. Choose 
The way you're going to live. Joshua said it. Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But don't play these games. If you're going to follow Jesus, be authentic, be real, follow Him. The only way a person can openly mix faith and sin is by trampling all over the grace of Jesus. You might as well be stomping on the cross. You know, it's ironic. We often think of of religious types as legalistic, uptight Pharisees. You know, when you say, oh, those religious people. You know, it is just as religious to trample grace for the sake of personal indulgence. That is religion. It's religion to show up on Sunday morning for a half hour of grace and then go back to living a life that is completely out of pace with Jesus. That's religion. And God would have none of it. It's living as we please rather than living to please the one who is a pleasure to walk with. Verse 28. A false witness will perish, but the man who listens to the truth will speak forever. In other words, lies die out, truth lives on. All lies eventually become known. All truth eventually comes out. And if you want the words that you speak to be a legacy, then speak the word of truth. If you want your words to be remembered after you're gone, if you want to leave a legacy that has some impact on the kingdom, on the planet, after you're gone, if you're gone before He comes, speak the truth. Speak His truth. You know, we record all of these teachings. All the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And I have had the thought, man, that would be kind of weird, you know, if I died of a heart attack or a car accident or, uh, you know, one of my kids tripping me down the stairs, something. It'd be really weird the day after the funeral for one of them to come home, go to the website, click on it, and hear me talking. Because, ooh, wouldn't that be kind of spooky, Hannah? You don't like that idea. <laughs> you know what's cool about it? Is, is the words go on. Yeah, but Rick, I mean, eventually we'll get shut down and your words wouldn't go on. You know what I pray? I was thinking about this today. Far more than Hannah clicking to listen to her dad talk, my prayer is that his word got into her heart. Because I was speaking his word. Not just Sundays and Wednesdays. But in speaking the word of truth, Jesus, Jesus says, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. God says, My word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. The word. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will never pass away. They're forever. And here we are 2,000 years after His death and resurrection, and Jesus remains the most quoted person in all history. I love it. Why is that? Because He didn't just speak the word of life. He is the word of life, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 1. I'll let you read that on your own time. Proverbs 21, verse 29. A wicked man displays a bold face. But as for the upright, he makes his way sure. There is no understanding, or no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. 
Those two verses, take them together. The wicked man, the bold-faced man says, Give me my day in court. I'm a good person. Let me stand up before God and we'll talk about my life. I'm, I'm good. He's got nothing on me. I'll show him why I should go to heaven. There is no wisdom and no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. You can't... You know, there are no loopholes in the Word of God. There's no outmaneuvering His counsel. God is right. He is always right. He will always be right. And when the great books are open... Revelation 20 talks about the great throne judgment. And when the books are opened up, there will be only one book that matters, and that is the Lamb's Book of Life. If your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life, you're saved. If it is not, it doesn't matter what the Book of Deeds talks about. What matters is the Book of Life, the Lamb's Book. Is your name written there? Is it? Now someone might ask, and I've heard from Christians, how do I know? How do I know that my name is written there? Have you confessed with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord? Yes, I have. Have you believed in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? Yes, I have. But people still say that seems so simple and I'm so ADD. (laughs) And what if my original belief wasn't enough? What if my original confession wasn't enough? What if I'm not quite there? Well, verse 29 says... As for the upright, he makes his way sure. The upright, that is the person made righteous by Jesus Christ, is sure and makes his way sure. Remember I said this a couple of weeks back. If you are looking at yourself, you will always be in doubt. But if you're looking at Jesus, you will never be in doubt. Well, I could question myself and my faith all day long, but when I look to the Lord, I think, yeah, I'm saved. Of course I'm saved. Why? Because He's faithful. And I trust Him. And I look to Him. Eyes on Jesus. Remember from Sunday? Israel, eyes on the ark. Christians, eyes on the Lord. Eyes on Jesus. Love His appearing. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Last verse and we're done for tonight. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. Now, Solomon was prepared. Solomon was prepared for the day of battle. He had a formidable war machine. Did you know that? He had a huge supply of chariots and charioteers and horses. In fact, he built entire horse cities. The city of Hatsor and Getzer and Megiddo. Those three cities in particular were horse cities filled with stables and all the horsemen and charioteers lived in those cities and they worked out around the cities and they cared for the horses in those cities. He had the famed Solomon's stables there in Jerusalem. Solomon had his horses. Second Chronicles 9.25 Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. Solomon was prepared for war. The horse prepared for the day of battle. And yet, ironically, the Bible doesn't credit Solomon with a single battle. He didn't fight wars. David did. And God said, David, you can't build my temple because you got blood on your hands. Too much war. I want the guy to build my temple to have no blood. Solomon didn't have blood on his hands. Solomon did not fight any wars. 
But he had the horses for it. He, his name, Shlomo, peace. He was a king of peace, a man of peace. And so I'm reading that, and Solomon wrote this. The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. And I think, Solomon, that's really ironic. If Solomon was a man of peace, why did he have such a war machine? Why so many horses if you are a peaceful king? Deuteronomy chapter 17 says three things for the kings of Israel that they were not to do. Bible students, remember what these are. They should not multiply horses. Strike one. They should not multiply wives. Strike two, Solomon. Or silver and gold. Strike three. Why did he do it? If he knew his name meant peace, if God intended him to be the king of peace, why did Solomon amass all these horses, this mighty machine of war? Why did he do it? Security. Just want to be sure. Just in case. Just in case. Do do you ever find yourself, pardon me, but do you ever find yourself trying to stabilize your salvation? (laughs) 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 Trying to be sure that you've got a stall reserved in heaven. You know? I know about grace, but I just need a little extra security. Listen. Listen. The victory is already the Lord's. It is already in His hand. If you want to ride in victory, the victory belongs to the Lord, not the number of horses. It's already the Lord's. So what do you do if you want victory? You be with the Lord. You be where He is. You do what He does. You make your life about His business. And if you want to ride, check this out. 1 Thessalonians 3.13, Paul writes of the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Not for, but with. Jude 14 says, Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones. Saints. Revelation 19 verse 11. John said, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And in verse 14 he says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. When did you ever see an army that dressed like that? (laughs) All right, gear up for war, boys. Fine linen, white and clean. (laughs) What? Why that? Why does John point that out? Well, it just so happens that's what the bride is wearing. So what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the same, same group of people. The bride and the army are the same group of people. The saints. And I saw the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following Him on white horses. You want to ride with the Lord? Then you put your life in His hands because He's already won. The victory is already over. Barb Gilmore one time asked me, so if we're going to ride with the Lord, do we get to fight? That that, that lady's got a little fight in her, you know? I can just see Barb on a white horse with a big sword chopping heads, you know? (laughs) You know? I said, said, Barb, here's the thing. According to Revelation 19, the battle's going to be over before we set one hoof on planet Earth. But we get to watch. We're going to be right there with Him. Victory. 
You can listen, you can saddle up, you can prepare to ride, and we should diligently plan. Absolutely. Stay sharp, put on the full armor of God, be equipped, be trained constantly, but never, never, never forget the victory belongs to the Lord. And Father, it's your victory that brings us comfort and, and peace, Lord. It's not our security and in our things and in what we do and what we can accomplish in our religious involvement, Lord. No, it, it's your victory. It's your grace. And we, again tonight, we just say thank you. We receive your grace all over again, recognizing you are the one who saves. And we are a saved people Holy ones of God, not by our holiness, but by yours. God, I look forward to riding with you. Jesus, what a day that will be. Praise you, Lord. The victory is yours in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.